0: What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Patrick Moratoglu. Patrick owns and operates the largest tennis academy in Europe, and has personally coached Serena Williams for the last 10 years. In this conversation, we discuss how he built his business, the qualities that make Serena Williams great, how people can improve their mental strength, and Patrick even breaks the news on a special project that he has been working on. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope that you do also. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on or run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app, there's also a ton of coaching features within it, like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop. right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Athletic Brewing. When it comes to non-alcoholic beers, Athletic Brewing changed the game. Their beer tastes amazing, and since each can is only 25 calories, 5 carbs, and made with organic grains, I can now enjoy the taste of a great beer without compromising my sleep or performance. But here's the best part. Athletic Brewing is now offering my listeners 20% off their first order with code JOE20. That's joe E two zero. So as you prepare to stock the fridge for March Madness, now's the perfect time to buy a refreshing, great tasting beer without the consequences. Next up is Eight Sleep. Eight Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and nature's best medicine. Consistent good sleep can help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues. Yet still more than 30% of Americans struggle with sleep and temperature is one of the main causes of poor sleep. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have ever before. All thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro Cover. The Pod Pro Cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. You can add the cover to any mattress and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment. The result? Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. The Pod Pro cover by Eight Sleep is so popular that it has garnered attention from CEOs, high performers such as Olympic gold medalist Red Gerard, and top CrossFit athletes, including the 2021 fittest man on earth, Justin Medoras, and UFC heavyweight champion, Francis Ngannou. They're all powered by Eight Sleep to make the most of their workouts and recovery. Remember, good sleep is the ultimate game changer. So go to eightsleep.com slash Joe to check out the Pod Pro cover and save $150 at checkout eight sleep ships to the USA, Canada, and the UK. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. What's up, everyone? I have Patrick. Maura Toglu here with me today. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Joe. Of course. So I know we only have a few minutes today to chat, so I want to just jump into things and kind of go rapid fire here. I'd love to start with your business, though. You've obviously built an incredible reputation as not only an excellent tennis trainer and coach, but you've built a great academy and a business on top of that. So how do you think from kind of 30,000 foot view, how do you explain your business and, and what you do for a living to other people?
1: Well, the interesting thing with that is that it was not planned to become what it became. It was just my story that naturally drove me to do what I started to do. Just to make it short, but I think it's important to understand. I was a tennis player when I was young. I was dreaming about becoming a pro. And my parents decided that I had to go to school and study because tennis was much too uh, risky, even though I was, was, I think, a good tennis player as a junior. This was a turning point in my life because I felt like someone took my life away from myself as it was my passion and I never thought about anything else than becoming a professional player. But then I jump when I'm 26 years old and I'm in the business with my father who has a big renewable energy business and he tells me, let's go that we can be now business partners and, and start building this together. And I tell him, no, I have a passion. I want to go back to my passion. And my plan at that time was just to help young players achieve what I could not achieve myself as a player because I I realized how important it is to have people who support you. Not that my parents were not supportive, but they didn't support me in my dream. So I, I thought I would dedicate the rest of my life helping young players become top professional players and build around them an environment for that. And that's what I started to do. I started to do that with limited number of players that I chose and we had really great success and it grew bigger and bigger and a few years later a few of those asked me to become their coach I never thought about that before and I thought well why not you know I was touched that they they wanted me to help them physically like as a person one-on-one so I started to do it and it worked really well I I had some really uh, good run with several players and I ended up coaching Serena now for Almost 10 years. This also, of course, helped also my business, my tennis academy that grew. We were in Paris. Uh, it became too small. Then we moved to the south of France in Nice, and we're actually now the, the biggest academy in Europe. And we have opened now tennis centers in Dubai, in Greece. We're opening a tennis and school program in Malaysia. We're expanding in- internationally. I think our brand is for what we're doing. The one of the biggest brands in the world, again, for what we're doing, which is coaching people. We are having also a lot of people who come for camps every year, more than 4,000 per year, who come for a week or, or several weeks, whatever age and level. We are building places for tennis fans who want to live tennis experiences. And we provide kind of unique tennis experiences for them where they can, of course, improve because Whatever age and level, I think people want to improve and in a, in a way that they feel really uh, inspired what, by what they're doing. And I think it's very important to bring also inspiration. So that's really the spirit of what we're doing. And around that, I built a lot of other activities. I have tennis digital media. We have the project that we're going to talk about soon. I have I have started also a tennis league called UTS in 2020 with just four events, but now we're ready to launch a real league with a a ranking and everything. This league has a goal to bring younger fans to become tennis fans. And I also have developed other activities in sports. We have trampoline parks, we have fitness clubs, a big ecosystem around tennis and sport.
0: Gotcha. So... The business is obviously pretty big now. You mentioned that it's the largest brand in Europe. You guys have locations all over the world, and there's multiple facets with media and all this other stuff that comes off of it. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned something I thought was interesting, and I don't know how many people listening to this know about this, right? But you worked for your, your dad's business beforehand, and you ended up leaving. You had an opportunity to basically go into a successful plan, right? And go right into there and do that for however long you essentially wanted to. How difficult was that decision? In your mind and like looking back on it is there anything you learned
1: specifically from that yeah you're totally right i had two ways uh, one way that was like a highway <laughs> my father's business was big already quite very big and it became actually incredibly successful i think it's a almost a two billion dollars uh, business today so it's huge and and i knew what it would be it was already big so it was kind of easy no risk i knew exactly what would happen and i had a second way which was my heart was telling me to go there. It was complete adventure. I knew nothing and nobody about this business, but I felt like that was the right thing to do. First, because I wanted to make my own way. I was not interested in, in just following a way that was already paved for me. It was no excitement for me. And second, I told my father, I remember at the time, I said, you know, I'm lucky I have a passion. Like most of the people don't have passion or they have one, but they don't really dare going for it. 100%. So I want to go there. I, I have a passion. I also have a dream that never came true. And I feel like my story with this, with Dennis, is not finished. It ended up abruptly and not the right way. And I'm sure I'm not done with, with this story. And I want to pursue the story. So, yeah, that, that's why I chose this way. And it was also because I love to be out of my comfort zone. The solution with my father was 100% comfort zone. And the other solution was 100% out of my comfort zone. And I love to be out of it. I really get bored when I'm in my comfort zone. And that's probably why I chose also this, this job as a coach where you mostly are never in a comfort zone.
0: Was there ever a point that you doubted it, right? Because I think people look at it today and they see the beautiful academy. They see the places all over the world. They see the success that you've had with Serena and other people. But this is a long journey, right? We're talking about 20, 30, 40 years at this point. How do you think about the difficulties that you, you ran into along the way?
1: Yeah, there were probably many, but first of all, I, I don't remember <laughs> I don't remember them. But also I think it's, it's fine. I mean, that's why I always say it's about self-belief, and it's a, it's a big key in life. And as a coach, I always focus on helping people develop self-confidence and self-belief, because when you have that, nothing really hurts you bad. You know Of course you don't like to, to fail. But at the end of the day, it's not a big deal. Actually, this is not very French, what I'm saying now. It's more American way of thinking, but I feel closer to the American way of thinking than that. You don't fail until it's the finish line. So if you have a real confidence that at the end you're going to get to where you want to go, like all these experiences, even when they're bad, it's just experiences that give you such an interesting feedback. If you're able to look at yourself and tell yourself, okay, I failed. What did I do wrong? And it's fine. And then... You understand better what you did wrong. Actually, I like the fact that a lot of people say you either win or you learn, which theoretically it's true, but in most of the cases, it's not true because when they fail, they put the blame on someone else and they don't learn anything. And again, I come back to the self-belief and self-confidence. You have to have some self-confidence to be able to tell yourself, I failed and it's okay. It doesn't hurt me because I still believe in myself the same way, but where did I make a mistake? And then you move to the next one. So. Probably a lot of hurdles. It was tough at the start where, you know, tennis world is very small and it's always the same people. And when they see a newcomer coming in, they don't like it. So the start was tough. And I always did things differently. So I think it, everywhere people don't like so much people who do things differently. <laughs> it's kind of threatens their way of thinking, their way of acting. So they don't like it. I had a lot of people against me, but it's fine. I think it's a good sign. And at the end of the day, now uh, I have a lot of friends. So everything's fine.
0: I was going to say it's funny how that changes. People don't yeah. like change. First off, they don't like seeing people do something differently and then they really don't like it when that thing starts to work, right? And they start to get more clients and win win titles and all that stuff. So that's interesting. One of the things I'm curious about is like, what makes the best players the best that you've dealt with, right? And one of the things we always hear about is just the mental game, right? When any professional sport, whether it's tennis or sports here in America, like the NFL or the NBA, there's obviously some level of skill that's required and work ethic and all that stuff. But in tennis specifically, is mental strength and and mental fortitude really the biggest difference between the best players in the world and other people? The mental
1: strength is 100% what makes the difference. I always say that. You have 100 players in the top 100 that play great tennis, and you have one who wins Grand set at the end, and actually has been three, for well, almost 20 years, only three guys. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not so much. They won 95% of the titles, those three guys. Of course, they play unbelievable tennis, but a lot of guys play well too. And you know, at the end of the day, you don't win Grand Slam with your tennis, you win it with your heart, you win it with your belief. And I've been lucky to with work with a lot of great players and champions. And I'm friends also with great champions. And I can tell clearly that they don't process the same way as other people at all. They have a different way to process, different way to think, different way to work. I would say that one of the things that is very different is that they're never satisfied with what they have. They have this constant will to get more. We've all seen a player who wins a title and then is like potting for the next 10 years because he's so happy. And then you have the champion who wins Rangeros, And the day after, he's thinking, or maybe a few hours later, thinking about winning Wimbledon, which comes in three weeks. And actually, I have the story with Serena that I've loved so much because that was incredible. We started in 2012, and she was in trouble at that time. And then she starts to win. We start before Wimbledon, and she wins Wimbledon, U.S. Open, and then the Masters at the end of the year. And then she tells me she struggles to win Rangaros, and she would love to win Rangaros. So we make a plan to win Rangaros. And the next Rangaros, she wins it. She's expecting to win Rangaros for 11 years without success. She wins in 2002 and then not once until 2013. It's quite long. And when she wins Rangaros in 2013, after 11 years trying to win it, right after the trophy ceremony, she's just stretching and I'm with her. And then she turns to me after literally five minutes and she says to me, okay, now we have to win Wimbledon. And at that time, I know she already forgot about Rangaros. The title she's chasing for 11 years. So this is really an example of the mindset of the champions. The level of expectation for themselves, for the team is so much higher. They process differently. And I have many, uh, I'm not going to tell you hundred stories because <laughs> we don't have time, but I also remember the year that Novak won the Australian Open beating Rafa, playing an incredible match like Rafa had no chance. I remember I was in front of the fitness room, like literally five minutes before they started the match at the Australian Open. And I saw the door open and Novak going out, literally to go to the court to play. And I remember the way he was holding himself and I saw him walk and I, I had an impression of determination, power, control, confidence, so strong. I remember, I don't remember who I was with, but I turned to that guy and I said, oh my God, he's going to destroy Rafa. You could feel it. And this is here, only here. Nothing negative about Rafa, who is an incredible champion too. But just to say that that day, what Novak brought to the table mentally was just from another planet. And this is where those guys are different. The way they process on a daily basis, because I I strongly believe that the way you think and the way you practice Mix the way you compete, the way they process and work on a daily basis, give them the possibility to achieve a level of tennis on those days that are impossible to match. And you work
0: with obviously a wide range of people from all different ages, people that are are younger, amateurs, people that are experienced and already champions. Is this something that you can tell immediately when you meet them? Or is this something that you believe can be trained that you work on daily to improve?
1: I think the mental strength can be trained, but I also think that people are naturally more gifted there than others, maybe not since they're born, but their education make them better at thinking or processing the ideal way to become champions. And I'm quite proud to sometimes recognize some, like I met Coco Goff when she was 10 and I had a discussion with her and I told the team, this one is different. We have to do something special for her. I signed because I was an agent at that time. A very long time ago, I signed Rosniaki when she was 10 years old for the same reason. I met Amanda Anisimova when she was 12 or so. And most of the guys I w- I've been developing for so many years, I met them very early and I I felt something different. Nothing magic, nothing like I have a special touch, not at all. I think when you meet someone who thinks and processes different, you can feel it. And if you discuss the right way with them. And that's why I like to have one-on-one discussion with them and kind of push them a bit there to see what's behind. Then sometimes I find out that they are really special and I love that. And I also scouted the uh, uh, Stefanos Tsitsipas on YouTube. That's how I discovered him, playing a match actually in Miami, a long time ago on YouTube. And when I saw him play, the impression that he gave to me, not about his game so much, but how he was behaving during the match, the way he was competing, was really different and that's what I loved.
0: How do you think, one of the questions I got when I tweeted out that we were gonna be doing this conversation was how other sports are impacting the popularity of tennis, right? So there's certainly bigger sports and, and kind of ancillary sports, but there's smaller sports that are somewhat similar like paddle and pickleball that have gained in popularity. Is this something that impacts tennis or is it a positive for
1: tennis? I think there is a reason for everything and it's not by chance then suddenly paddle and, become big it becomes just there is a market for that and there was no more market before so there is a new market that opened up and i think there is a new market because the world has changed radically those last 10 years the digital has completely changed the way people consume whether it's consuming on tv which actually is not on tv anymore it's more on the digital now or consuming sports like playing sports I think that people want performance that are shorter, more dynamic, with easy access, simple access. You know, tennis is difficult. You need to work for one year to start to really enjoy playing tennis because the first year is tough. Technically, physically, you know, you struggle to have the right to start to have fun. With a pickleball or paddle, you take a racket, you have fun first second. And this is more the way people consume today. Again, because of digital, with the social medias, the streaming platforms, the video games, the e-sport, they have easy access, it's fast, it's immediate gratification, immediate in tennis. It's a long time before getting gratification. And that's actually the reason why I started UTS because I realized that the young generation doesn't watch tennis, they don't watch tennis. The average age of the tennis fan watching tennis is 61 years old and it grows. I mean, it gets one year older every year, which shows that we are working on the fan base of the seventies and the eighties. It's still the same fan base. We're not recruiting new fans. So the goal is still to create a format that is based on tennis, but it's shorter, more dynamic, no downtime, gamification, and more immersive. All those criterias that make people watch, and the same for consuming in terms of playing the sport so
0: formula one as i'm sure you know already has done the series with netflix right drive to survive it's been very popular specifically here in the united states and it's been a big reason as to why they've grown the sport they went from having one annual race to now there's potentially going to be three races here a lot of sponsorship money and viewership money and all of that has come from the united states also obviously a major market but when it comes to tennis they are rolling out a similar series or are rumored to be rolling out a similar series. Is this something that you are a fan of? Is this something you do not like or what? And I'm curious because on the formula one side specifically, I think new people or newer fans are big fans of it. They love it. They think that it's awesome to have this access and people that are senior in the sport or are very involved in the technicalities of the sport think that it maybe be dumbs it down a little bit too much. Right. And it's, and it's for, a different audience so just your your opinions on kind of the tennis aspect of this potentially
1: i'm 100 percent into it of course i think and i always say that what the fans want is to be immersive immersive emotions people watch sports because they have a lot of emotion that's the same reason why they would watch a movie and in a the movie there are characters you love the characters you are bonding with them and you live a story being with them It's the semi-sport. You love an athlete, you love a team, you bond with the athlete, bond with the team, the team or the athlete shares emotion with you and you share your emotion with the the athlete. How can you love an athlete when you don't know the athlete? The more you know about him, the more immersive is the experience, the more emotion, the more involvement, and the more the fan is gonna follow the sport. So that's for sure the best thing to do. The success of Drives to Survive, Of course, paved the way, I think it's a great thing that tennis is developing the same kind of partnership with Netflix, bringing a docuseries, helping people know the players better and get to know them, like them or dislike them. And we need both. In a story, there are good people and bad people. And it's the same in every sport. Not that they're good or bad, but they are the ones you like and the ones you dislike. And then you're engaged. We need to engage the fans. So I think it's great.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I think specifically Formula 1, it gave people the opportunity to see the personal side of the drivers, right? Something that you don't typically see, which is obviously a problem in, in most major sports. All right. Before we get into some of the projects that you're working on now and things doing now, One of the other questions I got was in regards to Serena. So you've obviously coached a number of great tennis players at this point. I think you're most popular, most famous, or or most known for being Serena's coach for the last decade. She had already won, as you mentioned before, was in, in a rut and had some issues, but had won 15 Grand Slams or so, give or take, around the time that you guys started working together. So a champion, a very good tennis player, obviously, and has won a bunch more since working with you. Was there anything that surprised you about Serena when you guys first started working together?
1: She had 13 Grand Slam when we started, just to give you the exact number. I mean, she was an incredible champion already, of course. I didn't make Serena at all. Serena was already Serena. That's how I saw my mission, was to help her do the best she could in the the years that she knew she had left. Actually, she almost thought she was done when we started, and the the good thing is she ended up still playing now, so, uh, and she's 40 years old, so. I felt my mission was to make sure that she would use fully our potential, which I believe is the mission of us as coaches. The funny thing is when we started, and I know it was a bit too much when I said that, but I really meant it. When we sat down and she asked me if I was interested to work with her, I told her, yes, I do, because I think you're an underachiever. And I was saying that to someone who had 13 grand slams, but but I meant it. I thought like She could have had 20 at that time already because I thought there were so many things that she could do better. And from that day, I thought, okay, this is the plan. This is how how I see what you've done so far with incredible success, 13 Grand Slams. But I, I think you can improve so much in so many things. This is what I propose to you, to do that job and see where it leads to. And to see if you have a better rate of success, like percentage of matches win, Number of Grand won per year. And that's, that's my goal, to make a difference. What surprised me? Not so much, to be honest, because, you know, I watched so many matches of her before. I mean, she was my favorite player. I have to say it. If you would have asked me a few years later, before, sorry, who was my ideal player to work with, for sure I would have said Serena because I already had so much admiration for her. And I always thought that there is no champion like her on the women's game. And I don't think they have been ever before. I expected her to be tough, to be a hard worker, to have a a level of expectation from everyone, including herself, super high. Like, I was not surprised in anything, except that, again, there were things that could have done much better, I thought, and I proposed her to do it. But, you know, there is no surprise when you have such a champion. The personality that you discover fits completely the achievements, as I said before we talked about it, the mental side makes the champion. So this was at the level that I thought it would be.
0: Gotcha. And your business back to the to the scope of it, right? Is obviously big and has a bunch of different facets to it. But how do you think about investments specifically, right? So I know that you spend a lot of time on coaching, obviously running the business is completely separate and connected in a way, but how do you think about investments in general? Are you spending a lot of time doing this? Are you actively investing in Stocks, fixed income, crypto, something else completely. Just talk me through kind of your thought process there.
1: Well, I don't define myself as an investor at all, but really as an entrepreneur. So I more look at creating and developing my businesses than investing in some other businesses. I did a few times. I did in Sorare, for example, the NFT company that is doing an incredible job in sports, by the way. And actually, that's one of the door that led me to know the crypto world, especially the NFT world. I invested also in something called the, the Paris Blockchain week, week Summit, which is one of the biggest uh, summits about blockchain in the world. That also opened me a very interesting door in the blockchain world.
0: Just so everyone knows, so rare is a $4 billion business. So you're not a novice over here. You, you, you know a little bit about what you're doing for sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, actually, they, they built their business in soccer, creating NFTs linked with a fantasy game. With The idea is absolutely incredible and also the, not only the idea, by the way, also the way they, they've run it and they're still running it. And they want to enter now new sports and I'm actually working with them to, to go in the tennis world and to enter the tennis world with the same kind of idea, developing a fantasy game with NFTs in tennis. Yeah, so I invest where I see an opportunity for me to understand better a new ecosystem, uh, get to know the people, understand how it works. And this blockchain and NFT world looked extremely interesting to me like really new and so much things to do and i thought it would be an incredible way to improve the fan engagement in sport which i believe especially in tennis can improve a lot and is a key for our sport so i looked at nfts through that let's say door to answer more your question i look at investment only when there is an opportunity for me to Do something in a business in the future gotcha yeah
0: i think that's a good approach you stick to what you're good at right which is building businesses and and looking at it from an entrepreneurship lens so when this podcast gets released i think the news is going to be breaking or had already broke that you are launching an nft collection it's called the coach talk me through a little bit about what exactly this is and why you're doing it
1: so the collection the coach nfts which is my collection is a collection of only 2,000 NFTs. So it's not many and it's done on purpose because the goal is to create kind of an exclusive club that will bring together the fans, the tennis fans, and the Web3 enthusiasts and bring those people together for two reasons. First, to live experiences together because I believe in experiences and with each of those NFTs, there will be real-life experiences attached to them. And it's also to have those minds go together and develop projects for the future of the sport. And of course, bringing the Web3 with the sport together. So that's really the idea. And it's an idea of a very exclusive group of people and club.
0: So I think there's obviously, I don't think, I know that there's obviously some people that are NFT critics still, right? They don't get it. They don't understand it. They think that it's a waste of time, money, whatever. This is different in my mind, right? Like there's some NFT projects that are simply just art, and then there's some that have utility attached to them. So this is a project that has, as you mentioned before, kind of in real life IRL experiences and is more of an exclusive membership club. Is this how you're thinking about it? And am I correct in that? And then like, what are some of the the in real life experiences or the membership, we'll call them perks that you envision people getting?
1: Yes, so you're totally right. That's really an exclusive club with real-life experiences attached to it. For example, one-on-one sessions, tennis sessions with me, participating in events at Muratogu Academy. It can be tennis events. It can be conference events around tennis and Web3. Like, I think there is so much to do, so much to develop all together. It's really being part of that club, having those experiences, but also being always whitelisted in the next projects. And we have a lot of projects that are coming up, which are always bringing together the world of the Web3 and the world of the sports all together. And there is actually right after this one, which is a small project in terms of number of NFTs, only 2000, there is already a much bigger one coming up, which I think is going to be extremely excited. exciting, sorry. and the people who are going to hold the coach NFTs will have the opportunity to also be part of the next ones.
0: Gotcha. And this is obviously super exciting stuff and congratulations, but has the conversation around, you work with a lot of athletes, right? And a lot of entrepreneurs. Has the conversation shifted on this stuff? or Are more people understanding it? Are more people talking about it in your world? Or is it still kind of small and nascent?
1: For the moment, I think it's the, the NFT world is still a kind of a foreign world for the tennis ecosystem in general. They hear about it. I mean, until there are some real projects that take place that they really they, they see in front of them on a daily basis, and then they will get it. I think it's really theory for the moment. And I understand that there are some people who are criticizing NFTs because it's very difficult to conceptualize it for a lot of people. So I understand that they don't get it. I think, and, and that's really the way I see it. I want to make sure, you're never sure 100%, but do everything to create long-term value. For me, it's never a one shot. And I think a lot of people think NFT is wrong. That's also why NFTs sometimes have a bad reputation. They think, oh, it's a great way to make money short term and take the money. No, if you think it like this, it's not going to work. And it's the wrong way to think it. You have to think building value on the long term. And all of the projects coming up really have that mindset. And that's why also there are some real life experiences attached to it. And there will be a lot of great real-time experiences with the next projects, because I believe it's it's a great way to build long-term value to those people. I don't want people to buy NFTs and be disappointed. There is no guarantee again, because you can't guarantee everything, but you can put everything in place to make sure that there is the maximum chances to create value on the long-term.
0: Well, and also just so people have some context that are listening. I had Gary Vaynerchuk on the show, who is an investor in SoRare, too. I'm sure you know him and is a great, incredible entrepreneur, regardless of kind of how people think about him, right? But he's he's built businesses and has done a great job creating wealth for himself and others. He released an NFT project, obviously. And one of the things that I think is similar is, right, it's, it's all driven by him. It's personality driven. He has a very public image. So I think that that's important, right? You're held accountable for some of these things. And then two, one of the things that he mentioned that I thought was interesting on my show was, he released the NFT, and the NFT was a couple hundred dollars at first, right? And they traded up in value, but initially, the NFT was just a, a few hundred dollars. And with the NFT, originally, you got access to his conference. It was a once-a-year conference that he was doing. And the conference, I think he said it cost him like a million dollars a year to put on, or maybe it was 500000 or something, but a lot of money. And he was like, I was pretty confident right then, right? I'm already delivering enough value to you guys that this is fine. It'll work out. Everything's Okay. But now that the NFTs have traded up and some of them go for 15,000 or 20,000, right? Much more astronomical numbers. He's actively trying to figure out ways to increase the value to the holders of these NFTs. So I think that's an important part when you get beyond just the art, right? There's obviously digital ownership, but it's an exclusive membership club, right? So it's no different than belonging to your country club or something else. You're part of a club. You can verify it through digital ownership. And then there's perks that come along with that. So I think when you start to break it down past art and you start to understand some of the utility, I think it makes a huge difference.
1: Yeah, I think you 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 put it perfectly, and I like the example of Gary, which someone that I know actually. We, we had a podcast together. I was invited in his podcast. I mean, he's, he's a great example. He's a master in launching NFT projects. He's really an example of someone who have thought something really new. The way he's done it was very new, and he done it in a way always thinking about the long term. And he wants to create value for his clients. And that's great. And thinking about this all the time compared to other people who are trying just to make a one shot, which I think is the wrong way to see it.
0: Okay, I got one more question for you. This is a personal question. I remember watching Serena's documentary on HBO, right? And you're in it, obviously, coaching and some of the scenes and stuff like that. And one of the things I walked away with, I was like, damn, this guy's a savage, right? Like he, he's very on top of things. He's an excellent communicator. But one of the things I don't think people think about all the time is some superstars and and the greats tend to be more receptive of training, right? They want to be better. They want to do these things, but not all superstars are that way. Specifically here in America, there's certainly superstars that do not want to be told what to do. Do not want to be coached. You coach a wide range of people, not just Serena, but many great players. How important are the communication skills that go along with that. And like, have you developed those over time of just how to talk to certain people and how to interact with them?
1: Well, it's all about that. It's all about communication. Everyone is different. Everybody's reacting differently to the words, the intonation of the voice, the body language, and you have to learn a new language every time you work with a new player. You have to learn his language or her language. I always explain that there are several stages in coaching. When you start with your player, a new player, The first stage is about discovery. So you don't take decisions straight away because you don't have even 1% of the information that are needed to take the the right decisions. So the first stage, you take all kinds of information, not only about the player, but also about the person and the way to communicate with that person, his background, what is important to her, how to make her feel good, how to make her confident, all this information that are so important. And at the same time, while you're doing that and you do it by observing, listening and shutting up as much as possible. You also build the relationship. And this is a key. If you don't have the relationship, if you don't have the trust, the 100% trust of the player, you cannot work. So our number one job is to understand what it is about, understand the person and build the relationship. All the coaches who say that this player is uncoachable, this player doesn't listen, It's a way to put the blame on the other one. It's our responsibility to be heard. It's not the responsibility of the player to listen. It's a completely different way to see it. So I believe that that's the way to approach this job. And I developed that because when I was a child, I was extremely shy to a point that I was completely unable to connect with people. I was always alone. I had no self-confidence. I was seeing me as terrible, as not interesting as a person. And actually, that was one of the reasons why I was not able to talk because I was always thinking that I would be ridiculous saying anything. And because I couldn't interact with people and we need interaction to live because that's the type of creatures we are. I, not purposely, but I started to observe people and try to put myself in their shoes. So I was looking at them, listening to the intonation of their voice, the words they were using, looking at their face expressions, their body language. And I was trying to be them, interacting with other people to feel what they were feeling. And then I was putting myself in the other one's shoes. And I was doing this exercise every day, a million times per day, because I was talking to nobody. And I didn't know at that time I was doing this to kind of to survive, but I didn't know that I was developing an ability that would be very useful for me in the future when it comes to coaching people.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Patrick, thank you so much for doing this. This was amazing. I know you could be doing a million different things with your time, so I appreciate it. Where can people go find more out about the NFT collection? I know that it's being announced on March 16th, Wednesday, and then it goes for sale at the end of the month on the 26th. But if people want to learn more about it, where can they go do
1: that? So we have a website. The address of the website is thecoachnft.io. On the website, you have everything, all the explanation of the project. There is a pre-sale with a certain number of NFTs that you can reserve, can pre-book, and then, as you said, in the 26th, the official public sale will be
0: launched. Amazing. Okay, I'm looking forward to checking it out. And again, thanks so much for doing this, Patrick. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano.
1: I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.